Good morning, and happy Mother's Day. Um, we are in Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 35 through 41. If uh, you don't have your Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. That'll be on page 788. Again, Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thank you for reading, Dan. Let's start this morning with a word of prayer, asking God to help us as we open up his word. God, we do need your help this morning as we look at your word. Your word tells us that we need the Spirit's illumination to understand your word. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would um, uh, enable us to see the truths that we come across here in Mark chapter 4, and that he would also give us the grace that's needed to submit to the truths that are here. Lord, you enable us to search our hearts and to see, like the psalmist says, if there be any wicked way in me, and to lead us in the way everlasting. And would we this morning trust in you who are sovereign over all things. So help us to see that this morning in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we come to one of the great stories in the Bible. In fact, it's a really well-known story in the Bible. Uh, even those who don't really read the Bible probably have heard this story, the story of Jesus calming the sea. And it's been depicted in many artistic paintings. Probably the most famous painting is this one on the screen, uh, painted by Rembrandt in 1633. Just a beautiful picture uh, that uh, my daughter Jubilee just decided to paint, and it looks really nice up there, doesn't it? Um, uh, she does do some great, great drawings, but uh, this one is not hers. Um, but just a beautiful picture that depicts well kind of the fear of the disciples and the raging sea and uh, the disciples waking Jesus up. I don't know if you can kind of see down here towards the bottom of the screen, they're waking him up, and just a beautiful picture. Interesting, interestingly enough, uh, this painting was actually stolen from the museum in Boston in 1990, and it still remains missing today. So if any of you are at a friend's house and you happen to see it hanging up on the wall, <laughs> uh, you can earn... $5 million by, uh, by sharing it with the FBI, and they would love to, love to uncover that. So, just in case, you're, you know, in case it happens. Um, but the, uh, 
uh, more beautiful than the painting is the story itself, which cannot be stolen and it cannot be lost. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, uh, the story of Jesus calming the sea. And the context of our story this morning is uh, that Jesus had been in Capernaum for uh, quite some time now, and he had been teaching and healing and casting out demons, and he had been uh, a busy guy. He had been working in many different ways. And at the beginning of uh, Mark chapter 4, we find Jesus uh, beginning to teach a crowd, and the crowd was so big that his disciples decided, okay, we need to get a boat and put Jesus in the boat and cast it off just a little bit and let him stand out, uh, out there on the sea so that everyone can actually hear because they're kind of crowding around him. So that's what we see at the beginning of Mark 4, and so that's what Jesus does. And he's been teaching from that boat um, to those that were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in our text this morning, Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to go to the other side of the lake. And so Capernaum is kind of on the north, well, I'm going to do it the wrong, it's on the northwest uh, corner, and he says we're going to go to the other side of the lake. And if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you can see they're going to the country of the Gerasenes, which is on the east side of the lake. And so Jesus says we're going to, we're going to go on this little boat trip. And, and it says that the disciples took him just as he was which probably just means that they took him right from the boat that he was teaching. In other words, he didn't even come to shore. He just, they took him right from the boat, and, and, they, and they took him, uh, and they began to travel across the sea. And so that's where we pick up this morning in our text. And uh, in this story, I think it's interesting, there, there's a word that occurs three times in this story, and I think it breaks up the text nicely, and so that's what we're going to that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you see, if you look in verse 37, you see the first time, and a great windstorm arose. And then in verse 39, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then in verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. And so that's how we're going to break up our, our uh, text this morning. We're going to look at these three greats. There's a great storm. There is a great solution and a great response. A great storm, a great solution, and a great response. So let's jump in here and let's look, first of all, at the great storm. And let me just say this first. This was clearly a very memorable event for the disciples. I mean, it was very, very clearly quite memorable. And I think that makes sense uh, uh, because, I mean, if you were in a storm like this, I think you would remember it. <laughs> if, you were in a, if you were a fisherman, and many of you are, and you were used to being on water, and this particular uh, time that you were on water made you feel like you were going to die, you would probably remember that moment. And so I think, I think uh, this clearly was a very memorable story. And um, I think it's interesting, so, so John Mark, the one who actually wrote this gospel, remember John Mark, if you remember, he was not actually a disciple of Jesus. He was not one of the 12 apostles, not one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And so he probably was not in the boat for this. Uh, but but uh, if you remember when we started the book of Mark, we talked about this, I think, and um, the, the book of Mark was written by Mark, and he was a close, uh, he, he, he connected very closely with the apostle Peter. And they spent some time together in Rome, and so probably, uh, Mark, probably this very story was a result of Mark sitting down with Peter, and Peter telling Mark all about this story. Now, this was written um, probably a few decades after the story actually took place, 
And so you can just imagine that Peter uh, remembered all of these uh, intricate details about this text. And I think we see that in some of the details that he records. Okay? In this text, we see all kinds of details. Mark details several things. He details what day this was, you know, at the end of the day after he had been teaching. He details what time of day, where they were going, the fact that they took Jesus just as he was, the fact that there were other boats besides them, uh, the fact that they were, ex- the, or the experience of the boat already filling. Uh, he talks about that in the middle of the story. And not just the fact that Jesus was sleeping, but the fact that he was sleeping in the back of the boat on a cushion. <laughs> So he he includes all these details, and they don't really contribute very much to the story other than to help us understand that this was a really memorable event. And you could just imagine Peter telling Mark about this story, and he just remembers very well what was going on. So this is a very vivid memory for, for, for these guys. And let's just talk about the storm for a minute. Okay, let's talk about the storm, because the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, anyone ever been to the Sea of Galilee? Okay, a few of you? Okay, awesome. Yeah, a few of you have been to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, why don't we just put a plug in here, uh, like Ken said earlier. Uh, we've got an Israel trip coming up next year, and you could go and sit on the Sea of Galilee if you would like to. Take a little boat ride. Shannon and I got to do that six years ago. It's pretty cool. Uh, but you could do that, and so put that little plug in there. So, uh, <clears throat> But the Sea of Galilee, is, uh, it's actually a, a, just a really big lake, is really what it is. And for those of you uh, that have been up to camp at IRBC, it's about five times as uh, bigger than Clear Lake up there. So this is the Sea of Galilee, a little picture. Um, and, and so it's about five times the size of Clear Lake, but it's not a massive lake because it's about 350 times smaller than Lake Michigan. Okay, so it's just, I mean, it's like a, a good-sized lake. And uh, some of you amphibious experts might be wondering, how could a lake produce a storm that would frighten experienced fishermen? You ever ever thought about that? Like, okay, so I've been to the ocean. How many of you have been to the ocean? Okay, you've seen some, you know, good-sized waves at the ocean. Yeah, like, if there's a boat out there, it, it rocks pretty well, okay? And I've been to the lake, even a big lake, and the waves are not quite the same, are they? <laughs> it's just not quite the same. So how could, uh, how could a lake produce this kind of frightening uh, weather conditions? And let's, uh, I think we need to understand uh, kind of the topography of, of the Sea of Galilee. Some of you are interested in this kind of thing. Some of you are like, uh, I'll fall asleep. That's okay. Uh, the lake is about 700 feet below sea level. Okay, so it's quite low where the actual lake is, where the Sea of Galilee is. And just to the north, about 30 miles to the north, is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is uh, a little over 9,200 feet above sea level. So you have this massive mountain just to the north, and then you have this really low place on earth right around the Sea of Galilee. And just to the south of the Sea of Galilee, is uh, about 60 miles, is the Dead Sea, And the Dead Sea, the shores of the Dead Sea, is the lowest place on land on the earth. And so you have this really low low area elevation south of the lake, and you have this incredibly high elevation north of the lake. And so what happens is you get this this cold air coming up from from the north and this hot air coming up from the south, and and it meets kind of here at the Sea of Galilee. And so it can create these uh, kind of tempestuous 
weather conditions. And the Sea of Galilee is known for these just sudden squalls. Uh, even today, the fishermen, some of the local fishermen will call this wind collision that takes place, they'll call it the shark. <laughs> That's what they call it. Uh, because it can. It can produce these just crazy storms, and it can create waves easily as high as 10 to 12 feet tall. So that's pretty big for a lake, right? Um, and so, but I think what makes the storm even more significant is if we understand the boat that the disciples were probably in. You're like, okay, 10 to 12 feet, all right, uh, if we were in like, I don't know, a cruise ship, uh, 10 to 12 feet would not be a big deal. But here is, uh, what I have on the screen here is, is, um, is a boat, it's called, the, uh, it's called the Ancient Galilee Boat, and it was discovered in 1986, discovered in 1986, and it was just uh, discovered just a few miles north, or just a few miles south of Capernaum, where Jesus was here in this story. Um, And I'm not trying to say that this was the boat, this was the boat. I mean, that would be pretty cool, right? Uh, But there were a lot of boats like this around this time. But what this does help us to see is what the boat would have been like that Jesus was probably in. And so this boat, uh, which was discovered here, uh, this boat measures, uh, it's, uh, it measures to about 26 and a half feet long and about seven and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet tall. So, I mean, if you were to take this platform here from, from this step to, to kind of the front step there and about the width of the platform, and that's about the size of the boat. So, I mean, you could fit 13 people in there, Jesus and his 12 disciples, right? But it was not a huge boat, And I think especially if you think about the height of the boat and the height of the waves, you start to get a little picture of why this could be a very frightening experience because the height of the boat is about four and a half, well, you know, I'm really tall, four and a half feet comes up to here. No, four and a half feet is like, what I don't know, something like right here. Uh, So you got four and a half feet boat and the waves are too high for me to reach, right? (laughs) They're 10 to 12 feet tall. And so you could imagine that this was a very frightening experience for the disciples. I mean, this boat, I mean, you could, you could understand why he would say it was already filling. <laughs> because these waves are tossing over the boat, and the boat is beginning to fill with water, and they're out in the middle of the sea. What are they going to do? This is a frightening experience. And I want to be careful not to over-spiritualize the text here. But I do think there are times when disciples of Jesus today experience frightening circumstances. You may find yourself in a situation where you begin to think, what am I supposed to do now? How am I going to get out of this one? I don't see any way forward. And you're frightened. And there is a temptation that every single one of us faces when we meet frightening circumstances. And I think we see it in the disciples' response. They say, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Did you see that there in the text? They say that in verse 38. Teacher, do you care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And we might have the same response. God, don't you care? God, you seem to be sleeping right now. Where are you? Why are you not acting? Why don't you take this away? Why don't you give me what I need? Don't you care about me? And that's the temptation. And that is where the disciples found themselves in this story. 
It was a pretty memorable event because it was a pretty memorable storm. But I think there's another reason why this event was so memorable for them. Not just the storm, but because of the great solution that Jesus provided here. I mean, what does Jesus do when his disciples are terrified? What does he do? He meets them in their need, and he exposes their lack of faith and their need for him. But don't you think it's interesting that Jesus is sleeping through this storm? I mean, did you catch that? Did I, did I, like, when we were reading, when Dan was reading this earlier, did you catch that? Wait a minute, Jesus was, what, sleeping? I mean, if this was the kind of storm that frightens experienced fishermen to the point that they thought they were going to die, <laughs> don't you think it's interesting that Jesus could sleep in the middle of the storm? I mean, some of you, some of you teens might fall asleep in class, uh, and some of you adults might fall asleep in meetings at work. And I may have put some of you to sleep already this morning. I don't know. Uh, but, but how could Jesus sleep in the middle of this storm? How could he do that? Does anybody remember the storm uh, this past, last Sunday evening, like a week ago? I mean, that was quite, quite the storm, right? And uh, quite the thunder and the lightning was like just extremely bright. And, um, and just, a, just a crazy storm. And that night, does anybody remember the thunderclap that, that happened right in the middle, like at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, Sunday night? Did it, does anybody else remember that? Okay, I told the teens this on Wednesday, but, uh, but that night when, uh, when that happened, okay, I was sleeping because I sleep at 2 a.m. I try anyways. Um, <clears throat> so I was sleeping, and when that thunderclap sounded, I literally threw off the covers, jumped out of bed, and I was in ready position. I was like, okay, what's happening? <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that with thunder. But that, that night, I did that. I jumped out of bed, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> and I don't know if I thought an intruder was coming in or if the house was coming down or what, but, but it shook me. It, it, was, it was scary. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, so Jesus here, though, is sleeping in the middle of this massive thunderstorm, this massive windstorm. And I think there might be a few reasons why Mark draws our attention to the fact that Jesus was sleeping. I mean, first of all, Jesus was probably exhausted. I mean, if, you, if you've been tracking with uh, ever since Mark chapter 1, I mean, Jesus has been very busy. He has been uh, casting out demons. He's been healing people. He has been teaching people. He has been waking up early in the morning while it was still dark to pray. And then he's been teaching some more, and he's been casting out more demons, and he's been healing more. And then he takes his disciples, and they're so slow, so he has to explain things again to them. And then he teaches some more. So he's been busy. Jesus has been busy. And you can imagine that he would be tired after all of that. And so here he is, and he's sleeping. And so that might be one reason that, uh, that Mark draws his attention to, the, uh, uh, to our attention to the fact that Jesus was sleeping. But I think there's probably another reason. And I think it's interesting that in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is one event recorded, only one, where Jesus is sleeping. And it's right here. And Matthew and Luke record it too in their parallel accounts of this event. But there's only one event in all the Gospels where it, it says that Jesus was sleeping. And I don't think that's because that was the only time he ever slept while he was on earth. <laughs> I think there's a very specific reason why Mark includes the fact that Jesus was sleeping at this time. 
And I think the reason is because ultimate sovereignty makes possible quiet rest. When all things are entirely under your control, you are not kept awake worrying about what's going to happen. When you are completely in control, you can sleep. I think Mark is trying to point to the fact that Jesus is God, and as God, He is sovereign over all things, even the windstorm. And therefore, He is asleep during this terrible storm. He is demonstrating His authority over the storm by sleeping in its face. But the disciples are terrified. They're not sleeping. (laughs) They are terrified. And so they rudely awaken Jesus. They, they shake him and they wake him in, and, and, and they, they scold him for his apparent lack of care. Don't you care about us? Don't you see what's going on? Don't you care? But it wasn't lack of care, was it? And before even turning to them and rebuking them for their lack of faith, he stands and commands the sea into submission. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, I thought this was interesting, in the Old Testament, the sea is often depicted as the realm of the dead, an unruly enemy that cannot be tamed except by God himself. That's kind of how the Old Testament authors talk about the sea. And Jesus stands up and he commands the sea into submission. He does so in a way very similar to the way he, the, to his demon exorcism in Mark chapter 1. Do you remember that in Mark chapter 1, where the demon's, uh, the demon's talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. Well, in this text, Jesus says, peace. And in the, in the original language, it's, uh, in fact, some of you might have translations that say, silent or hush or quiet. That's why I tell my dog when he starts barking like crazy, hush. <laughs> And now Jubilee and Carson do the same thing, uh, thankfully just to the dog, not to me. Um, <clears throat> but that, that's, that's the picture here. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, be silent, see, hush, quiet. And I think it's significant that Jesus commands the sea with just his word. Did you catch that in the text? All he says is, peace, be still. He simply spoke two words. He didn't, he didn't do a rain dance. He didn't, he didn't hop up and down, and he, he didn't even pray at this time. You know, sometimes he prays before he does things. This time, he didn't even pray before he did this. He just spoke two words, and the sea obeyed him. Just like the words of God in creation brought order out of chaos, Jesus speaks simple words and calms the sea. And I think this is the point of the story. This is what we're supposed to understand from this story. Jesus is God. That's what Mark's trying to show. Only God can calm the sea. And Jesus calmed the sea. So Jesus is God. I mean, if you think back to the Old Testament, there there are a few times where God directs the sea. Uh, when When the Israelites are crossing the Red Sea, God parts the waters. When the Israelites are crossing the Jordan River, God parts the, ro- the waters. When Jonah is running from God and there's this massive storm, uh, Jonah tells them what to do because he says, God is causing this storm. And what happens? They throw Jonah over and God calms the sea to be quieted, to be stilled. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He calms 
the sea. And the way he does this really grabs the disciples' attention. I mean, it just, it just locks them in gear. And I want you to notice their response. Here's the great response. Look at verse 41. It says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they are left in awe of the sovereign God. They're just left in awe. The fear of what God could do exceeded the fear of the storm itself. I mean, in the, in the, in the original language the, where it says uh, they were filled with great fear, that actually includes the verb form and the noun form of the word fear. And literally, it, it would read, they feared with great fear. <laughs> In other words, what Jesus did caused them to fear in a way that was greater than the way that they feared before he'd calmed the sea, when, when there was the fear of the storm. The sovereign working hand of God shocked and awed them. But Mark does something interesting in his gospel. We've talked about this a little bit as we've gone through the gospel of Mark. And uh, maybe you've picked up on some of this as well. But Mark does something interesting. He's constantly emphasizing the slowness of the disciples to accept and trust who Jesus is. Did you ever catch that as we're reading through? He's like, he's like, how slow are you to understand? What? Uh, how many? How many times do I have to explain? <laughs> um, he's constantly depicting the slowness of Jesus, of not not of Jesus, of the disciples in understanding who Jesus is. They constantly mis- misinterpret. Even in chapter eight. Okay, in chapter eight, we're going to come to the place where Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And it looks like, yes, maybe Peter finally got it. But a few verses later, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter didn't get it. He did not understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. In fact, it's not until chapter 15, at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, where we finally meet the first human to actually understand who Jesus really is. And it's a Roman centurion. The guy who's responsible for executing Jesus is the first person to say, truly, this was the Son of God. It's interesting that how Mark develops this. But Mark is constantly highlighting this, the disciples' slowness to accept Jesus, and he does so here. Look at verse 40. Jesus says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In that last question, have you still no faith? The first word in in the original language is still. (laughs) Still you don't trust? Still you don't believe? How many times have you seen me heal someone? I mean, there was that, you remember that lame guy who couldn't walk? And I said, get up and walk, and he walked? You remember all those people that were, that had demons possessed They were possessed by demons, and with just a few words, they left. I mean, have have you not seen this? Have you not seen, I mean, all this teaching with unprecedented authority. You've never heard teaching like this, Jesus, Jesus says. You've never heard teaching like this. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught, but it was not with authority. Jesus comes and he teaches with authority. How many times do you have to see the works of Jesus until you're going to believe? Is kind of what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. And maybe can I ask a question this morning? How many times have you seen God work in your life 
for good. As you look back and you remember circumstances where you were very afraid, circumstances that were very fearful, which of those circumstances completely consumed you, utterly destroyed you? I mean, you you may have suffered, right? You may have suffered. Yes, you may have experienced evil. But in which of those circumstances did evil completely consume you? And who can we attribute that deliverance to? Well, I worked really hard to get, get myself out of that mess. Well, yeah, you probably, you probably did work hard. But who gave the ability to work in the first place? My excuse is, uh, well, I, I use strategic planning. I, I really figured out a way how to, you know, how to, how to, how to go move forward and, and get this person to say just the right thing at just the right time. But who really orchestrated the way that that person responded to me lining things up? I mean, who made the rain fall at just the right time or kept it from falling at just the right time? Who made sure there was a job opening in your field? Who sent the right person your way at just the right time? Who gave you your personality? Who gave, you your, ki- who gave your kids their personality? Who allowed that event to happen that dramatically affected the rest of your life? I mean, if we look back, we can see that God is the one who orchestrates all events in our lives. Behind every difficult circumstance that we face, there is a God who is sovereign over all things. He's orchestrating all events to fit together. He has done this ever since creation, and he has done this in your entire past. And so this present circumstance that you find yourself in, he's sovereign over that too. But what we find in the story is that the disciples' failure to believe was not because of a lack of understanding. It's not like they, they, they needed to know something, right? Because, I mean, first of all, they had all these things that they had seen. They had watched Jesus do all these things. But I, look, look back for just a second in verse uh, 11 of chapter 4. Remember, Jesus has just told the, the parable of the seed and the sower. And in verse 11, he says, and, it's, and he said to them, to you, the, the, the 12 disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Or look at verse 34, right before our text. It says, he did not speak to them without a parable, in, in other words, the crowds, he did not speak to the crowds without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so he's been explaining things to these disciples. Their, their fear here was not a result of their lack of knowledge. One commentator put it this way, the real threat to faith comes not from a lack of knowledge, but from doubt and fear. Uh, in the exchange seminar many of us went through recently, Jeff Musgrave uh, described faith as having three elements. He kind of described it as a triangle. And faith has three elements. The first one is understanding. Like you have to actually know something, right? You have, you have to know facts. If you don't know the facts, you can't really put your faith in those facts. So you have to know something, first of all. Secondly, there is agreement. You actually have to affirm that those facts are true. Yes, I believe that that is true. Uh, and then thirdly, there is trust. 
I actually choose to lean on, to demonstrate my belief by leaning on those facts with all of my weight. So, um, like this, this, uh, this podium right here. Uh, I could know some facts about this podium, like how it's built, how, and I, I could know, I mean, the box might tell me that this supports, uh, uh, I don't know, 300 pounds. And so I could say, okay, I know this, this podium supports 300 pounds. And I, I believe it. I, I believe it. I bet it could hold up 300 pounds. But I am not going to, this morning in front of you all, jump up on this podium and test that because I'm, I, I think I know, but I'm not really sure that it's going to hold me up. Uh, or that I could stay up on it. <laughs> um, and so I don't truly believe that. Uh, my, so we're putting on a deck on the back of our house. And um, I could know some facts about that deck, right? I can know. Uh, the, code, the code says, the city says, uh, that it's, you know, it's, we had somebody else frame this deck for us because it's like the edge of the deck is like 10 feet off the ground. And I'm like, I, I don't want to mess with that. So <laughs> I'm going to have somebody else do that. And so I had somebody else do that. And uh, they follow this code that the city gives them, right? And this code gives us some facts. It tells us that if you, if you have this many posts sitting on this many footings dug this deep in the ground and filled up with this much concrete, if you put all those things together, it's going to culminate in a deck that can support my family, okay? So I know that. I mean, it's, it's true. And I, and, I, and I believe it, too. Like, I mean, I think about all those facts. I'm like, uh, yeah, that, that many posts, yeah, I mean, that... That should, that should really hold me up, right? The real test of my faith and those facts is when I bring my kids out with me onto the deck and I step onto the deck and put all my weight and my kids on that deck. And it's at that moment that I really believe that this deck really will hold me up. And I think as Christians, we can know facts about God, we can kind of believe that, that this is true. But what does it look like to live a life that demonstrates that I really believe that this is true? What does that look like? Disciples, true followers of Jesus, respond to all of life with that kind of faith in the sovereign God. I know God cares because I read it here. And I believe it. I believe he cares. I believe, I believe he cares. But what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to live in a way that shows that I trust in the fact that God cares. I mean, I know God is sovereign because I read it here. It tells me God is sovereign. <laughs> I know that. And I, and I believe it. I, yeah, I believe that God is sovereign. But what it means to follow, uh, follow Jesus is to live my life in a, life in a way that demonstrates that I truly believe that God is sovereign in all circumstance. So what does that look like for you? What does it look like to demonstrate that, yes, you truly believe that God cares and that he is sovereign? What does it look like for you in your situation right now? Maybe for some of you this looks like getting up off the ground and doing the next right thing. Maybe your typical response, we all respond differently to fearful circumstances. We all fear, by the way. Some, of us, some, some, uh, some make it look like we don't fear. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, I don't fear. Fear's for, 
No, we all fear. <laughs> we all wrestle with fear. And we respond to it in different ways. And some of you might respond, you may be your typical response to fearful circumstances is just shutting down. I can't do this. I won't ever be able to do this, and so I quit. And you clam up, you shut up, you give up, and it might be today that you need to get up and do the next right thing. Uh, maybe for some of you, this means not taking action, because that is your typical response to a fearful circumstance. When you're afraid, you start taking control. You start manipulating. I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. But it's really fear. It's fear that God is not going to work this out. I fail to trust in the sovereignty of God, and so I take matters into my own hands. Maybe I need to stop and pray and rest in the fact that God is sovereign in this circumstance, and let him do the work. But what does it look like for you to respond to your circumstances with a heart of faith toward God? I encourage you to take some time today, maybe this afternoon, and meditate on this. Meditate. Maybe even ask someone else. This is, this is scary, I know. But ask someone else who's close to you. Do you see any fearful responses in my life? Or that, that, leaves, that, that leaves them the opportunity to say, no, you never struggle with fear. Maybe you could ask, where do you see fear show up in my life? <laughs> How do you see me respond to fearful circumstances? And think about it. Meditate on it. Ask God to reveal any fearful responses in you. In this story, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus responds right away. I mean, before he even said anything to the disciples... He responds right away. And we know from Scripture that, that that isn't always how God works. In fact, that's probably not usually how he works. It seems like most often, before God reaches in and pulls me out of, out of the painful circumstance, he has something he wants to teach me first. And that usually seems to be how he works. But this, in this story, Mark records Jesus actually doing something about their problem first. And I think what he's trying to show us, he's, pu he's putting an emphasis in this story on faith in the God who can act. Believe that God is sovereign and that he cares and live in light of his love and his sovereignty. And maybe let me just close with this. The way Mark records the disciples' last question, did you, did you catch that? The very end, he says, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And no answer. And the way he, he, he writes that question, it's a rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? Any, uh, any high schoolers? Grammar class? Literature class? Can't answer that? Oh, there you go. Yeah, there, there you go. You can't answer. Yeah, that is the answer. Yeah, it, a rhetorical question is one that the author never intended to, to answer himself with his words. He wants you to go home and think about it. And that's what Mark does all throughout his gospel. He's constantly writing in such a way that causes us to, I mean, you can't leave Mark's gospel and not, not question in your own heart, what do I believe about Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? Who is this 
I mean, he can do that. He can do this. He teaches with this kind of authority. He, he can exercise this kind of demon. I mean, he can, I mean, he does all of these things. Who is this? And it might be that as you come and you hear some of God's word preached over the course of time, it might be that Mark, that Mark and God is trying to bring you to this point as well. Who is Jesus? And if he truly is God, and if he can do this, he is. If he truly is God, then will you submit to him? I think the question for all of us this morning is, will you believe? Will you trust in the God who controls the sea? Will you believe in the sovereign Lord? Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the truth that your word teaches us this morning specifically that you are sovereign over all things and you care and you can act and so we must trust you. Would you help us this morning to have the faith to trust you in whatever fearful circumstance we find ourselves in and however we typically respond to those fearful circumstances? Would you give us the grace that's needed to cast out fear and to be motivated by your love and your sovereignty? Would you do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.